In the name of the loving, life-giving, and liberating God, who is Blessed Trinity. Amen. You may be seated. So, a surface reading of both our Old Testament and our Gospel texts might have us thinking that God is against us, or at least that we have done something wrong if we find ourselves in desolate places. We haven't asked hard enough, or we've angered God, and so we find ourselves bereft. This might be a real fear for you here at Advent, as you come and work and worship faithfully, and the pews don't fill back up. But this is not the message of our gospel and our passages today. We read each passage in the light of the witness of the whole Bible, and both of these passages contain promises to God's people of God's faithfulness, care, and love. These are passages of hope and not despair. So first we come to Hosea, and to be clear, things were going wrong for the people of Hosea's time. Many things they were doing were not in line with what God wanted for them. And at this time, they were nearing the time when Assyria would conquer them and send them into exile. This is the background against which Hosea is preaching. And he's asked to preach in an interesting way by using examples of his life. He was not the only prophet to do this. Ezekiel apparently laid on his side for a whole year to bear the sins of Israel. It's a long time to lay on your side. In this passage, Hosea is making an example through the names of his children. Now, prophet's kids, they always get the short end of the stick. They're kind of like preacher's kids in that way, getting pulled into sermon illustrations. Isaiah, another prophet, had a son whose name was Maharshala Hashbaz, which, besides being a mouthful, means something like spoil quickly, plunder speedily. Of course, that stands in contrast to Isaiah's previous son, named Emmanuel, meaning God with us. We remember Emmanuel long after Mahar Shalahashbaz has been forgotten, for good reason. And Hosea's children are no different they're initially named Jezreel for a valley where Israel fought bloody battles against each other. Lo Ruhama, for which the root is womb. So it means viscerally not only not loved, but not mother loved. And Lo Ami, a reversal of the covenant promise meaning not my people. These are held up as judgments and a reason for the ancient destruction of Israel and Judah, which would lead to exile. But they also uncover a pattern of behavior which would lead to natural consequences. The Israelites were devolving into violence and failing to love God and neighbor, even as we are prone to do. And God does not shield them from the consequences of that because God cares for the least among us, 
and wants us to establish justice. And even still, God will try again and again to help the Israelites understand how they are hurting others and themselves. The end of our Hosea passage proclaims a reversal of all the names given, because God is in the business of reconciliation. This is not a cheap grace, but a commitment of a God who loves all of creation and wants the world to reflect God's own kingdom. God does not free us from the consequences we engineer for ourselves, but God also does not abandon us when we have lost our way. But what about when we have not lost our way? When we're asking for the things that God wants in this world, what do we do if we seem to get no response? To find out, we have to look at the gospel. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to relate to God and how to relate to each other as they pray. This teaching is also accompanied by two parables on prayer. And these parables are where we might run into some problems. Because these two parables can make it seem either like God is miserly, and you have to be persistent to get any type of response, or that if you can figure out how to ask correctly, you'll get whatever you ask for immediately. But I don't think those interpretations hold up in the face of what we know God is like. And I think we can find better interpretations if we look first at how Jesus tells us to address God. When we pray, we are to pray to our Father. We're in a parent and child relationship with God. God is not a far-off deity whose transcendence keeps us at arm's reach. Instead, God gathers us like chicks under her wings, cares for us like a mother nursing her child, or like a father who provides food and comfort. God nurtures us, takes care of us, helps us to grow, and all prayer starts in the strength of that relationship. Now, some of us have likely had harder relationships with our parents or our loved ones. We have not had the security that we are meant to have in those relationships. But God is always faithful to us, even when people fail us. And it's that strong relationship, like a parent and a child as they are meant to be, that undergirds all of our prayer. So in the parable, when the man goes to his friend in the middle of the night for bread in order to provide food for a guest, he's depending on the strength of the relationship to make that request. The word that's translated persistence in our Bible might better be translated shamelessness. If you'll notice, the man asks only once. And he trusts not only that his friend will provide, but that their relationship will not be damaged by such a request. 
If you had a good friend who needed something, even in the middle of the night, you would do all you could to make sure they had what they needed. They wouldn't have to be persistent. Because we love our friends, we will want to make sure that they have what they need. And we would hope that our friends would know this about us, that they would be truly shameless in asking for whatever they need, trusting our relationship. The same is true of God. We don't have to wonder if God loves us or wants to provide for us. We can trust God because God loves us infinitely more than a parent could love a child. Because of that, we don't have to equivocate or hide behind the oft-used phrase, if it's your will. There are good intentions and reasons behind praying for God's will, not least of which is Jesus' own example, not my will, but yours be done. But often that phrase has entered our prayers in a way that makes it seem as if God's will is inscrutable as if we can't figure out what it is. Jesus knew what God's will was when he prayed that prayer. Jesus knew he was going down a difficult path, but that path would lead to reconciliation. So he was able to pray for what he wanted, a deliverance from suffering, and also set aside his wants for the life of the world. We know that God's ways are higher than our ways, that there are times when we won't understand what's happening. But we also know what God wants for creation. God wants us to prosper, to live in love for God and for each other, to establish justice and mercy on the earth. God wants good things. For us and to lead us in paths that will benefit others. We wouldn't wonder whether a parent who had the means mentally, emotionally, physically, whether they wanted to provide for their child. And a child who has grown to trust their parent wouldn't expect to receive a snake when they asked for a fish. So neither should we when we approach God with our requests. We know that God loves us and wants good for us, wants us to prosper. And that even when we have done something to make things go poorly, as, as the people in Hosea's time had, we can approach God with confidence that God hears, cares about us and our lives, wants good for us. So in the times when we wait for that good to come, we know that our world has not yet been fully enveloped into God's vision for the kingdom of God. Bad things still happen. The good seems long in coming. We still grieve and yearn for wholeness. But we also know that Jesus has accomplished reconciliation for the whole world. And we can rest in the hope of the coming kingdom of God. So let's step into that hope and lean on the God who loves us no matter what.
Amen.